Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wright Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I are bringing back Dr. Jeff Wright to give us an update on the ICU care of the COVID-19 patient. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Henry, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, and, and Jeff, you just need to know that that of all the podcasts, I think you, you're still unchallenged at number one. So that people found your, uh, your initial discussion of the review of uh, treatment of the patient in the ICU to be, be very interesting. Now, you've been challenged along the way, so this is your chance to recover unquestioned the number one spot on all of our podcasts. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jillian in the, in the vaccine episode has uh, may have dethroned you, so we need to get you back on top. Yeah, well, so that's okay. I mean, really, that's probably the more important one, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> so the last time that we recorded this podcast, the recovery trial had just come out, and what what's changed along the way as, as you've treated so many COVID-19 patients since last summer? Yeah, you know, I think we've, I think that they're really, I think, I think my first kind of take home on everything so far has been that what we're really seeing is, is that, again, it's kind of sticking to the basics, um, doing basic good ICU care remains the most important thing that we can do for our patients. So that includes, um, you know, the, the tenants of the ICU liberation bundle, the A to F bundle, as it's also called where we're trying to make sure that we minimize sedation, use appropriate choices for sedation, um, use appropriate um, kind of daily awakening trials, um, all the things that in early mobility when we're able to, all of these things are made more challenging by, by COVID and the requirements um, uh, on the staff to be sort of in PPE garb all the time and things like that, but they remain, I think, the fundamental parts of what makes ICU care successful in these patients. Of course, as the recovery trial demonstrated, um, and I think it's really continued to be proven the case, um, using steroids um, at appropriate doses um, is uh, particularly preferably decadron, but I think you know you can argue that you can probably use methylprednisolone just as equ uh, equivalently. Um, but the, that that remains the one thing that has the most impact, excuse me, on, on these patients. Um, there's also some signal in some of the different studies about perhaps in critically ill patients, those requiring uh, mechanical ventilation and so on, that the tocilizumab uh, may have some benefit. That's an IL-6 inhibitor, uh, may have some benefit uh, in these patients in terms of reducing their mortality. But it's, I will tell you that that data is a lot more mixed there are studies for and against. Uh, I would say none really show any harm uh, the, uh, over the other critically ill patients. So uh, I think it's probably not an unsafe um, um, choice um, uh, to utilize, uh, but it, it, and, and it, and again, it may have some benefit for these critically ill patients, but it's really hard to tell from the data so far. I appreciate you jumping in right on Tosi and talking about that. So are you still in favor of using tocilizumab? Uh, yeah, I actually, I kind of for a long time was not in favor of just because there was no no data. And I I prefer to be a data-driven person when we can, uh, especially when tocilizumab is expensive. There was no, you know, it is one of those things where I think you probably have to treat a lot. You can You can treat a few patients and see the lab values change. Um, I think you have to treat a lot of patients to see 
the outcome and change. And so I think we're at that point where it's one of those things that we can do that is an incremental small benefit. So yeah, and those patients that are requiring uh, either who are kind of look like they're headed towards mechanical ventilation or needing high flow nasal cannula oxygen uh, at, at high rates, um, then I think it's probably worth worth pulling the trigger on it. So you mentioned mortality rates for, for COVID-19. And, you know, the national news story has been that mortality rates have been improving over the last year. What do you attribute that to? Do you think it's just the dexamethasone and uh, some of these other drugs? Or are there other things that you're seeing on an individual patient by patient basis that you think are having more of an effect? Well, uh, yeah, a couple of things I'd say. First of all, the, um, the, although the mortality rates are improving, um, I think um, I think there are three different things, and I'll, they're still abysmal. I mean, <laughs> it's still a right. if, if you get intubated, you know, it's very, very bad. Um, you know, the, it's uh, you know for uh, for I, yeah, Society for Critical Care Medicine, I believe, I think it was in there. Just I just read this story, uh, read this article last week, uh, and I've already forgotten the journal. Um, but uh, basically, the uh, you know if you're 75 or older and wind up on mechanical ventilation, your the mortality in that group is still 85%. Um, you know, and even for the so-called, you know, lower risk patients, um, you know, what I consider young people, um, you know, 35 to 49, that mortality rate is still around 40%. So if you wind up- If being, you're intubated, yeah. If you're intubated. So it's still deadly. Um, so um, the, uh, I think the things, I think there are three things that sort of confound the mortality rates. First of all, I think a lot of those high mortality rates early on were for systems that were overwhelmed. Um, and, uh, you know, New York City, Italy, and Milano, where they had, you know, just more sick patients than they had, than they had resources to cover. So I think that that, you know, if you look at New York City's mortality, it's very high. And a lot of it was just because they were overwhelmed. The other thing is, you look at that. I know, you know, for example, uh, my son has friends from college that live in New York City, and you know, they had COVID, and they couldn't. They just said they didn't get tested, and they never really got counted as a positive case. They just got sent home and said, "You've got COVID." (laughs) You know. know? So what was the, you know, what was the true incidence of the disease? I think we might have been a little, maybe perhaps underestimate because tests were very limited, and so we weren't diagnosing everybody that probably had it. Um, and I think we probably even saw that here locally where we, we probably were missing cases just because we didn't have testing resources. So I think that contributes to the mortality rate looking worse than it really is. And where people were dying that just clearly had it. And then there were other people that, you know, probably did well and didn't have it. And then third, I think, yeah, there's some, in, there's some changes we've made to care. Um, the steroids, um, this, there's, there was this early intubation thing, I think, which was probably may have led to harm. Hard to know, but I, I think that that would have led to harm. That was, you know, our experience here is that, that sometimes when we, you know, we did intubate some people earlier, um, whereas now we're letting them ride with relatively low oxygens for a longer period of time, gotten more comfortable with that. So I, and I do, you know, I do think maybe that that might have led to a slight increase in mortality just because being on mechanical ventilation has some bad side effects. So, so Jeff, you you've alluded to you, you gaining a certain degree of comfort with the management of of COVID nineteen and understanding the respiratory insufficiency that that can be ominous and that I think we all felt like oh oh my goodness we got to intubate this person he's crashing. What do you mean you gain more insight into 
the, the clinical course, you're allowing people to sit longer with a lower O2 saturation. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like I was, uh, <clears throat> I had this conversation with one of my friends that I trained with. And, you know, normally when, when two years ago or a year and a half ago, if somebody had, you know, if I'd had a relatively healthy young person whose sats were, you know, 80% and uh, I was doing everything I could, high flow nasal, can true high flow nasal cannula. So the, you know, nasal cannula oxygen, 60 liters a minute, 100% oxygen, humidified, um, maybe even an, maybe even a non-rebreather mask on top of that, which we're having to do sometimes now, and their SATs are 80, I would have automatically intubated that person. Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, okay, Let's give it a few hours. Let's have him lay on his stomach. You know, you just because you become more uh, comfortable with that. There are kind of, uh, it's interesting, there are kind of different trajectories for this disease. Some people sort of come in, they get very sick very quickly, and then we have these, this other group of patients, so I think it may be more common, where they their respiratory insufficiency um, develops relatively slowly over days and then lasts for weeks and they're on these high amounts of oxygen for a long period of time uh, and just improve very, very slowly. And uh, a lot of those patients are patients that I would have, I would have pretty eagerly intubated and I found um, that, no, you know what, they, they often, sometimes they do go ahead and progress and need to be intubated, but sometimes they don't need to be and they do just fine without it. So proning is still part of your, part of your, the, the tricks that you, that you that you lean toward? Uh, yeah, it's I, you know it's kind of a uh, <clears throat> uh, in the non-intubated patient, it's a um, I would describe it as uh, it's 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 a band aid. It doesn't really uh, uh, it's a bridge. You know, it doesn't. Uh, I think it buys you a little bit of time. It, it's not. And people that have looked at the data uh, more carefully, and we haven't looked, carefully looked at the data locally, but. Uh, there hasn't, it doesn't seem to impact mortality or severity of disease or length of stay or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes it does, you know, at least it makes you feel like you're doing something. <laughs> and it does help the numbers, uh, you know, they look a little bit better for a little bit. Um, so, but on mechanically ventilated patients, we're using it pretty regularly. Any other changes in just the mechanics of mechanical ventilation? Are you still using the ArtsNet protocol or and things like that that you discussed last time? Yeah, we're still doing the ArtsNet protocol largely. I mean, that remains the standard of care internationally. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of noise early on um, from some academics who I think probably weren't taking care of a lot of patients um, about, you know, these how there was COVID lung and how it was different. But uh, I think the bulk of the critical care community has landed on treating these as if they had ARDS, which is basically what they did. <laughs> Would you mind, because we, we have a broader audience, sure. uh, just critical care folks, describe what is what, what the components are of that. Yeah, well, the, the principal component is, uh, so back, you know, Henry, when you and I were we, were, we lads, um, everybody was uh, put on, when people were put on a mechanical ventilator, they were given a tidal volume of 10 cc's per kilogram. That was sort of, oh, just put them on 10 cc's per kilogram. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, in, in the United States, about... It, it, the time the Arsenet study was done, which is 30 years ago, um, 20, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the United States was obese anyway. So 10 cc's per kilogram wound up often being bigger than 10 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. 
Um, so, and, and their concern was is that this uh, causes uh, excess lung stretch and distension, and that alone can be uh, pro-inflammatory. The principle that the ArsNet protocol is is that you uh, um, is that by reducing the tidal volume, you reduce ventilator-induced lung injury uh, or ventilator-associated lung injury, VILI. Um, and when you uh, so by reducing that tidal volume to six or six to eight kilograms at least uh, of ideal body weight. Again, it's not your 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 lung volume is not. Uh, not uh, determined by your weight, it's determined by your height uh, and your sex. So you, you calculate the person's ideal body weight and then you set their tidal volume based on um, what their um, uh, what their their weight their ideal body weight is. Um, and that's a simple formula. Uh, you know you can I use I have it programmed in my my phone and I just punch the numbers in. Um, the um, um, the one of the things that there are two things to kind of keep in mind about that. First of all, it's typically these are people that are in respiratory failure have air hunger, so the tidal volumes themselves may be uncomfortable to the patient. Or they may they may want to um, breathe deeper and faster than you want them to. Uh, and that sort of complicates the sedation problem and uh, and can make them appear uncomfortable. And so you do have to work kind of carefully uh, with the patients. Uh, if they're awake, you you know you have to offer them reassurance. Um, often we wind up just keep having to keep these patients a little bit more sedated, frankly, than we'd like to. Um, so that's uh, one of the problems. The other problem is is that it's very because uh, again, sick patients have a pretty high, ventilation requirement, their lungs aren't very efficient, um, we're giving them small breaths and they can only breathe so fast that so they will develop something called permissive, what we, we call permissive hypercapnia. And that means that we're, we're become comfortable with letting the PCO2 rise and the pH drop a little bit. Um, now, and so we, we're pretty comfortable having somebody have a pH of 7.2 and a PCO2 of 60 or 70 um, and, and accept that as, as being within the standards of care for patients that require ARDSNET ventilation. So do you find yourself putting a ventilating rate a little bit higher because they aren't, they aren't really? Yeah, they'll, well, it's not uncommon for them to have a set rate of 30 <laughs> and, uh, and, then, uh, and then breathe 35, uh, sometimes even 40 times a minute. Um, and, and those, all those things kind of, you know, it's there are all sorts of technical challenges associated with that high respiratory rate, but it, um, it it's you really become fairly comfortable with it after you've done it a lot. One of the challenges that we've had, you know, during the pandemic is uh, staffing shortages and staffing turnover related to furloughs. Have yeah. have you noticed um, any any issues related to that? Um, you know, with new nurses having to come in that may not be familiar or comfortable with taking care of these patients, uh, you know, travel nurses, other things like that, or just uh, physician staffing challenges that you've had to overcome? Um, so far, we've, uh, we've been pretty lucky in terms of, uh, of physician staffing. Uh, um, uh, we've not had huge challenges there at, at Baptist East. Um, I know Henry was worried that he was going to get called in to be an ICU doc. Yeah. 
That was one of the things. Well, actually, Jake, we were going to pick you first. Uh, <laughs> I'd probably do a little bit better than Henry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's ever worked in a Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a picking internist at heart. So, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, if I needed a line, I might call him though. Yeah, no, no, no. I'd, I'd let him do that. No, but I was pretty good yeah. at central line placement back in the day. <laughs> um, you know, but nursing and actually respiratory therapists, it's been a huge challenge. Um, certainly we've had, um, you know, respiratory therapists in particular, a uh, huge risk for them, right? They're the ones yeah. giving the breathing treatments. And yeah, so we've had uh, weeks of, after weeks where we've had multiple respiratory therapists furloughed. Uh, due to um, due to COVID exposure or uh, illness, um, so um, that's respiratory therapy staffing's been a problem. Uh, and um, the other thing is there is an attrition. Uh, some of these folks are offered being offered five, six, seven times what they make normally in a month to travel. Um, and um, I, I frankly, you know. Um, uh, I, I understand that it sometimes becomes a financial, probably the fiscally responsible thing for them to do to take those opportunities. Um, but um, but that's had an impact on our staffing um, and uh, same thing for nursing. Um, I think most of the travel nurses we've had have been have had experience with COVID patients. Uh, a few come in and, have, you know, their, their contract specifically says they're not going to be doing taking care of COVID patients. That's fine. <laughs> We still have plenty of other people to take care of, um, but um, yeah. So, uh, the but the, there's been we've for example we wanted to open more ICU beds um, uh, here at East, and we had the space uh, built out uh, to open more ICU beds, and just couldn't do it because of staffing. Um, uh, you know, there are ICUs here that have a waiting list. Normally, have a waiting list for. Um, nurses coming into them, uh, particularly our concourse ICU, which has had long-term stable management and a very uh, amicable work agreement, uh, work environment. Um, you know, they've they've they're down a large number of pay of nurses uh, because so many have left to do travel positions. So that's a real problem for the system, uh, and it's a it's a problem nationwide. Everybody's yeah. having to you know compete for what was already a limited resource. Mm. So, you know, as we continue to move into this, I know, I know we're hoping that uh, things start to get better and people come vaccinated and we're, we're going to see less and less cases. But are there any other trials on the horizon that you're watching for that might change the management that you've, you're anticipating? Well, we're, um, there are some other trials going on with a variety of different drugs. There are some antiretrovirals uh, across the country that are being evaluated. Uh, we actually have uh, participated in two clinical trials here. Um, one was for a uh, soluble, and it's still ongoing, it's for a, a soluble TNF inhibitor, uh, which kind of works at, on the inflammatory cascade at the level above the IL-6 inhibitors, the tocilizumab. Um, it's very, uh, it's kind of very appealing from a mechanistic uh, standpoint. Uh, we've enrolled a number of patients in that study, and it's an ongoing uh, phase two clinical trial. Um, and then um, uh, we just actually uh, we were in a trial uh, with a little bit more aggressive therapy for critically ill patients uh, that was a uh, complement inhibitor, uh, and that trial has actually closed early for futility. So uh, there was just we only enrolled a couple of patients in that, uh, but there was no. 
uh, at the uh, interim analysis midway through as a phase three trial, uh, there was no clear signal, and so they decided to terminate the study early. What's your, what's your thinking now, Jeff, on convalescent plasma? It's had kind of a, a mixed mixed review over the course of the summer, and as we've looked at those with high antibody titers, any thoughts there? Any, any comments? There? Yeah, I, uh, you know, again, kind of pointing back to the recovery trial, the recovery trial just uh, mentioned, kind of reported on their data with convalescent plasma, uh, which showed no benefit. Um, there have been some signals for potential harm in the sicker patients. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm uh, not a proponent of convalescent plasma at this point. And the same for uh, the monoclonal antibodies used inpatient that, that's been shown to potentially cause harm that you've seen. Yeah, from the study that's out there, again, there's a little bit of data to suggest that in elderly patients that the and that they're that are very sick, that the antibodies might help, but uh, might help for a expensive therapy. I'm not sure that's a great, not sure that's a great choice. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you would like the medical staff uh, to know about the the management of COVID-19 patients? Well, I think it's important to recognize it's not going away <laughs> anytime soon. And I'm really, I'm concerned that the next couple of months are going to be very challenging uh, for the whole healthcare system. So I think it's, you know, I think one of the best things that physicians can do uh, is continue to be advocates for sane public health policy. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, trying to, to get people to be compliant, you know, it's pretty clear at this point that that masks help and social distancing helps. Um, you know, it's not a panacea. It's not um, it's not a perfect solution, but it's what we have uh, until we have um, adequate vaccination levels, which are still months away um, mm -hmm. to get herd immunity. So I think if you know physicians continue can continue to advocate, um, you know. Uh, politicians, laymen, uh, religious leaders are not experts on public health. Um, physicians are, and, and we should continue to, you know, continue our advocacy for, you know, being smart, <laughs> doing what we, what we know works. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months because, you know, as we start to ramp up vaccinations at the same time that these new variants are emerging that may, that are more contagious, that may lead to more cases. And so it's just, you know, can we possibly vaccinate enough people before the variant takes over and becomes dominant? It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, no, I'm really kind of concerned about that now, especially as the CDC sort of makes more dire predictions about it. Um, so uh, absolutely, those are those are all concerns. And uh, I think one of the things I think that is encouraging to me is, is at least now we're starting to get out, um, you know, into the nursing homes and into the elderly population and get them, uh, get them vaccinated. And I think that's, hopefully that's going to make a palpable impact on at least uh, intensive care unit care, because there'll be fewer of those patients in the ICU, hopefully. Um, the, um, um, you know, what we do about, uh, um, you know, everybody else is, is and how quickly we can do that is going to be a real challenge.
Yeah. Luckily, over the last two weeks, we've seen our numbers, our inpatient numbers decline a little bit, but ICU mm -hmm. numbers still pretty flat, it's looking like. And I know all of our critical care units are, are still at capacity. Um, so hopefully those start coming down as well. I mean, you haven't noticed anything on a day-to-day -day basis yet with decrease in number of patients. Uh, well, like you said, the uh, inpatient numbers are down, but the the ICU, again, these patients are sick for so long. Um, I mean, we have people in the ICU who are, you know, no longer require isolation, um, who are still on the same oxygen settings they were on when they got into the ICU. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, uh, it's uh, it's pretty, that's that's going to be the challenge, you know, is, is, you know, as more and more cases come in, you know, that's one of the reasons the ICU capacity maxes out. It's just the length of the illness. Well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us an update on the ICU management of COVID-19 patients. Uh, any last words or closing comments for the audience? No, thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you go to the show notes, you can click on the, the survey to earn your CME credit. Thank you.